0: On July 18th, 2013, the city of Detroit declared bankruptcy. From
1: a financial point of view, let me be blunt, Detroit's broke.
0: That's Rick Snyder, Michigan's governor at the time.
1: Today I authorized the emergency major for the city of Detroit to seek federal bankruptcy protection.
0: Detroit owed $18.5 billion. Detroit has paid its bills for decades by borrowing money while struggling to provide basic services. It was then, and still is today, the biggest city in America ever to declare bankruptcy. The city's population, close to 2 million in 1950, is now around 700,000, leaving whole neighborhoods practically deserted. The city had lost its tax base to the suburbs and the once vibrant core was abandoned. So too was the Bronco, that rugged truck that changed the way we thought about off-road vehicles It had been out of the market since 1996, abandoned by Ford. Even the Bronco Underground, the secret society of employees that had been working for more than 15 years to bring it back, were running out of gas.
2: There's a lot of frustration. (laughs) There's a lot of, you know, some false starts out there. But I think in general, it's just, you know, not much is, is officially going on. That's Mark Gruber the heart and soul of the underground. End of the day, you don't have the pen. You don't really have the you know, the ability to do much. You're just more or less, is there people we can influence that decisions are made at the highest level? And you're just trying to figure out if there's anything you can do to help. Is there anything you can do to, uh, again, if you get the call someday to make it um, so you're we can do this. And just when he thought things couldn't get
0: any worse, He discovered that Ford was on the brink of making a $200 million mistake, one that if it wasn't caught in time, would forever put an end to the idea of bringing back Bronco. Welcome to Bring Back Bronco, the untold story. I'm Sonari Glinton, and I'm asking the question, if you love something enough, can you bring it back to life? The Underground has taken three big swings at reviving the Bronco. Maury Callum's U260, the red model in 2002, it was killed because Ford thought they had too many SUVs in their lineup. The 2004 concept car, that one was never built because despite being gorgeous, and it was, Couldn't be built on any existing platforms, and Chris Ring's Millennial Bronco that failed to secure an executive blessing in the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis. Three strikes and you're out, right? Well, this is not baseball. This is the car business. Chapter 7 Green Light. In 2013, the Broncos' fortunes got a boost. America had fallen head over heels in love with the SUV. But it's not like they just swiped right and met for drinks. No, this love affair had been simmering for a long time. It started decades ago, out in the country.
3: Yeah, I grew up on a farm in in northern New York State.
0: That is my dear friend, Michelle Krebs.
3: We had trucks, we had tractors, but we also had a Jeep.
0: After decades as a car journalist, Michelle is now one of Detroit's leading auto analysts.
3: I just remember it being very hard to drive because it had a really stiff clutch and difficult stick shift to shift.
0: Now, I don't want to give away Michelle's age, but just let's say that she and those early vehicles have matured
3: a lot since then. You know, if I think back on being a kid on the farm, driving the Jeep, I would never have imagined that we would see the SUVs today that are super comfortable, cool to drive. Really, it is the station wagon of today. 55% of all new vehicles sold are SUVs.
0: 55% translates to more than 9 million vehicles last year alone. It's a massive market that's made SUVs essential for every manufacturer.
3: Anybody who wants to stay in business these days has had to beef up their sport utility line. Look at Volkswagen. Volkswagen had mostly cars. Well, now 67% of their new vehicles are SUVs because that is what the consumers are demanding. Remember when Porsche announced that it was going to do a sport utility vehicle and the purists went nuts. And uh you know we wouldn't have nine elevens today if we didn't sell a whole bunch of cayennes,
0: M- meaning I, mean, it,
3: I think it's I think it's questionable whether Porsche would exist today if it didn't introduce the sport utility vehicles. If you are not uh, strong in sport utility vehicles you're you're going to suffer if you depend only on cars
0: that reality kept the door open for the underground. Ford executives were searching high and low for vehicles that would feed this growing demand. So this was their chance to bring back one of the most beloved SUVs in company history. Now about that $200 million mistake I mentioned earlier, to get there, you need to know something about brands, namely how much they're worth. Bronco, Mustang, or Corvette, those would be three examples right there. That's Carl Brower, one of my favorite auto analysts.
4: These are brand names that for a wide portion of the population immediately elicit feelings of positive, you know,
0: emotional happiness. What's shocking is how strong those associations can be, even after 25 years out of the market.
4: You know, I think Bronco has established itself as kind of this rugged, off-road, adventuresome nameplate. And a lot of people are looking for that in cars.
0: Those positive feelings are worth a lot of money.
4: You can make an argument that uh, it costs over twice as much marketing dollars to raise awareness of an unknown brand new model name than it does a, a model name that has some or or high awareness. And if you're going to spend $200 million in marketing a, a new car, which you could easily spend, it could be $400 million if it was a brand that was brand new and no one had ever heard of.
0: In that scenario... The brand name is worth $200 million. But the name Bronco, given its heritage, might be worth many times more than that. That's what makes what happened just seven years ago so unbelievable.
2: So we've got a group uh, within Ford who does all the nomenclature and trademark uh, work. That's Mark Gruber again, Ford's marketing guy. And... Then, periodically, they'll get reports to say, here's all your trademarks that are expiring.
0: It was just, you know, your typical lawyers pushing papers around at yet another meeting where no one is really paying attention. Well, except this time. Mark heard something that made him sit up straight in his chair.
2: At that particular time, Bronco was on the list to say, hey, Bronco's going to expire.
0: Seriously, it was like a footnote at the bottom of a page. Oh, by the way, we're going to lose the Bronco name if we don't use it. 30 years of heritage, followed by 17 years of dudes fighting to bring it back, was all coming to an end because of Section 1058 of Chapter 22 of Title 15. Mark knew right away what that meant. But in case you're not sure, here's Carl Brower again.
4: Well, it all depends on if someone else would have scooped it up. But if someone knew that it was available, you could have had a Toyota Bronco, right? Or a a Chevrolet Bronco. And I think that would have been uh, very painful for Ford to have ever had to witness. Painful and expensive. And it's just amazing when you think about these nameplates and the value that they have and the awareness that they've got that anyone in any corporation
0: would ever consider letting them slip away. That
2: night, Mark and the Underground held an emergency meeting. Everyone's like, "Well, shoot, we can't, we can't lose it because we can't really develop a Bronco without the the name." So the team quickly kind of mobilized and said, "Hey, this is about to expire. We got to come up with a plan about how we're gonna keep the the trademark."
0: Now, you can't just fill out some paperwork and apply for an extension to maintain ownership of a trademark. You gotta use it. They decided that their best option was a limited edition run of Ford Expeditions.
2: We're going to call that package the Bronco package. Maybe it's a four by four package or something like that. That sounds easy until you realize they had no budget and no authorization. You've got to work with a lot of different groups to make something like that happen. you got to get it in what we call our order guides, uh, so it's on there. you got to get an actual badge on the vehicle. Who's going to design that? Who's going to produce it? How do you get it on the vehicle? Oh, and do you mind doing this on your lunch break? They could just say, hey, shoot, I don't care about it. It's not my vehicle. It's extra work. I don't want to deal with it, but... They would be passionate about Bronco, too, and so they would come up and try to help and say, okay, what can we do to try to keep the trademark alive on that?
0: A month and a half later, and with very little fanfare, a Ford Expedition was put on display at a really small-time auto show in Florida. Really small-time, like shopping mall small-time. Now, that Expedition had been modified by a local custom design company, and it had oversized tow hooks, Two and a half inches of lift leather interior and a cool two-tone paint scheme it also had three stainless steel etched badges that read bronco it's the only one ever built but it was enough to save the name one of the biggest obstacles remaining for the bronco underground is a question of logistics And in a multi-billion dollar industry, logistics matter. They had to prove a new Bronco could be made at a reasonable cost. You see, a brand new vehicle with entirely new components is a very expensive proposition. In fact, making use of existing components was key to getting the first Bronco approved. Now, check this out from the Ford archives. I'm reading from an official Ford memo dated October 23rd, 1963. It's the founding document for the Bronco, the paper that lots the brand. Now here's what it says about proposed production plan. The side panels, tailgate, end caps, floor pan, and wheelhouses of the F-100 pickup box are being utilized with minor modifications. Other existing shelf components will be used in a similar manner whenever possible. That was the approach in 1963, and the underground needed to embrace
2: that philosophy to have any hope
0: of building a new one.
2: You've gotta have what we call a platform in the industry. You gotta have, you know, like the, the frame or the core pieces to kind of build from. It's like when you're making dinner. You kind of check what's
0: already in the fridge before you head out to the store. Well, in this case, they need to find something that was a similar size that could share a frame and an assembly line. The problem is, nothing like that existed. Then, one day, Mark's phone rang.
2: That was actually in, uh, like, March of 2015, yeah, I remember the day where we had the guy who was in charge of the cycle plan, Eddie O. Eddie O was the guy who controlled the purse strings and all the plans for what, the, what was going in and out of the cycle plan.
0: A few years ago, it was that same Ed Ostrowski who had grilled the underground about their millennial bronco. So he was well aware
2: of what they were up to. I remember the meeting. We had Eddie O, who came to myself and my boss and said, We're moving Focus out of the Michigan assembly plant.
0: The Ford Focus is a compact car launched in the late 90s. But the company was moving away from passenger cars because of all those market changes Michelle Krebs mentioned
2: earlier. Focus, you know, was starting to decline and the overall sedan market's declining. So Ford was doubling down on trucks and SUVs. That
0: assembly plant in Wayne, Michigan The same factory that made the original Bronco back in the 60s was being converted from cars back to trucks, specifically to build the Ford Ranger. These decisions take many years to go from the boardroom to the factory floor. It was 2015, and they were looking five years into the future, asking, what should we be building in 2020?
2: We need two products to go in there. They're going to be based on this T6 platform, which is kind of what the rest of World Ranger was built on. One of them's Ranger. You guys figure out what the other product is, and I need a plan from you. By now, you
0: know Mark well enough to know
2: what his response was. And so my first question was, can we do anything on the second vehicle? And he said, yep, anything. I said, we can do a Bronco. And he said, if you guys think you can make a business case, you can do a Bronco. So, Can he make a business case?
0: Well, Mark in the Underground had spent the last 15 years making a business case.
2: We knew we could build a Bronco off of that because we had studied it already. We had papers on it, and uh, we just had to put together the proposal to kind of get approved, to uh, get everybody convinced that, hey, this, this was going to make sense, this could make money for us. So that's all we needed was just that opportunity. Basically, it was, it was Christmas, if you will. That, that was the day that, you know, this is, is going to happen now. Yep, Christmas in March. You know, I immediately went back to my office at the time and just called in the team and said, hey, today's our day, you know. We got the opportunity here. We got to come in with guns a-blazing to say, this is what we can do with Bronco, and we got to just knock their socks off on this.
0: It was as if the last two decades had been spring training, and suddenly, it was opening day.
2: There's going to be a lot of people that don't want to do it. There's a lot of people that are going to say, it's hard, or why don't we just do another E-utility or whatever it is, right? And what is it gonna take to kind of get everybody convinced, like, this is what we need to do.
0: Um, So you're saying, I mean, like I, I'm sitting with Mark and Tom Patterson. He's the first person Mark called when he was told there was room in the product cycle for the Bronco. Tell me the story of you standing in the field with a bunch of Jeep Wrangler owners around and you. They had 15 years of business plans already compiled, enough to fill a half dozen binders. What they needed was to put a face to those numbers. So, tell what, us what you were trying to do.
1: What we were trying to do is understand the, the emotional and the rational connection to these those vehicles. We really
2: need to get out of Dearborn and go out there and live where the customer is and talk to the customer and, you know, be with the customer on everything they do.
1: And what the customer was doing was driving Jeeps. What was it that that Jeep did that got the customers so excited. One of the first things we did was we wanted to go buy a competitive
2: vehicle. Went out and bought a couple Jeeps. So we bought a two and a four-door. We started just, hey, we're gonna go to different off-road events and kind of pose as customers. Tom is an Ohio native, so he had their first stop already picked
0: out.
1: This little old town, Columbian, Ohio, I can't imagine it's more in a population of about 5,000. So what they do is they host this event every year. And I'm telling you, thousands of people come to a field and play with their vehicles all over these dirt trails and mud bogs and rocks and so forth. So we were like, okay, that's what you would call your classic target rich environment. So let's go figure out what these people are all about. We drove down there, it was only like four hours and we were like, yeah. Yeah, this is the kind of person that would absolutely love the kind of um, vehicle that we, we conceptualized. There was no doubt that within that group of people, there was definitely some Bronco customers. They just didn't have anything to buy right now. There's only one choice in the marketplace.
2: We went out and really, again, tried to immerse ourselves and educate ourselves. Tried to be humble to say, look, we're not the experts here. We've been out of this for a long time. Let's not pretend we've got all the answers.
0: What they discovered was that a whole bunch of Jeep owners were asking themselves a very simple
2: question. What do I do with the doors? It was very cool in the morning. And you're going to go out for several hours out on a trail. And, you know, people were like, I want to take the doors off. And so people were either taking their doors off and uh, freezing for the first few hours, or we would literally see some people taking the doors off at the trailhead and chaining it around a tree. You see, the doors of a Jeep Wrangler are removable,
0: but the window frames come with them, so they're too big to fit in the back of the truck.
2: The customers really didn't know any different. They were like, no, this is what you do. This is just how it works, and it's fine. And they just put up with it because that that's all there was so some of the folks from our engineering team kind of saw that and you know said boy that's from that's not an ideal customer experience there we saw that tension between the experience that they wanted to kind of live versus all the trade-offs and inconveniences that they experienced and it goes beyond the doors when you took your doors off they had no exterior mirror at that point there Clever engineers came up with a much better solution uh, on the new Bronco. Hey, we're going to make them aluminum so they're lighter weight. We're not going to have the frame around so they're easier to handle. We're going to store them on board so you can take them off uh, if you want. And we're going to mount the mirror to the cowl of the vehicle so when you take off your door, you still got a mirror. So that, that's something that you just wouldn't learn unless you were kind of out there uh, with the customer.
0: That's just one of a dozen things they learned about how people use their 4x4s. But the most important thing they learned, and this is after years of studying the market, wasn't about the vehicle at all.
2: And the funny thing was, we kind of show up to this event and we've got a dozen or so, virtually all you know, males, and it's kind of like... It felt like it was standing out a little bit, you know, cause you got some couples and families there. And then all of a sudden you got a dozen or so males that are all driving together. Just, it felt a little bit weird. Turns
0: out getting stuck in the mud is a gender neutral pursuit. A bunch of dudes off-roading together wasn't the norm. It was an exception. They weren't building a Bronco for bros. They needed to build one for families. Now, at Ford, if you want to talk about who the customer is for a new Bronco, or any vehicle for that matter, you have to talk to Sarah Turner.
5: My role is the Consumer Insights Manager.
0: Sarah's job is to understand the customers.
5: And I love it because it's really understanding the people, what's motivating them, their, their life choices and context from a broad perspective.
0: Her research backs up what Mark saw at the trailhead.
5: There is a female market, absolutely. Bronco is a huge catalyst for the image they w- that they want people to believe. It's not your soft car. It's bold. It's big. It's gonna make a statement.
0: She found women wanted a vehicle to reflect the part of their personality that didn't get recognized enough.
5: And within women, right? Some of us are moms, and it's it's the antithesis of any mom vehicle.
0: In other words, it ain't no minivan.
5: It's safe, it's durable, it's big, it's reliable, it's rough. And just looking at it, it had inherent capability. We even heard from women, you know what? I love this because I think I'm going to be able to get in it. And I don't care what dirt, mud, whatever, it'll be able to easily rinse off. And away they go. So there's a sense of you know utility and comfort that I think is really critical for women. And then when we think about the vehicle itself and the role it will play, so there is this role of adventure that is in their life, but for them, it's about escaping their normal life and it's their me time. So they think of it and they just talk to us about it as this energy that they get um, from recharging so that when they come back, they feel refreshed.
0: Sarah does her research through large surveys, focus groups, and one-on-one interviews, but she also draws on her own life.
5: I was a little girl, and I had a close family member that lived nearby, and she would help get me off to school in the morning. She was a widow at the time with three young kids, and we lived in a rural community. There was, um, you know, dirt roads and Michigan weather, as you can imagine, any given day. You didn't know if it was snowing, raining, what was gonna happen.
0: That neighbor, the widow down the way, she drove a Bronco.
5: And every morning, the four of us would pile into that Bronco. It was a 1984 blue Bronco. And I'll never forget it. And no matter what, Whatever the conditions were no matter how muddy the road was no matter how much snow was we had to go and there was this really long driveway that with a hill that she had to get up at, you know go up and down to get us out the Bronco got us there. Then I just I just have those memories of Bronco. <laughs>
0: In 2015, Mark and the rest of the Underground presented all their research about the customers, about the business case, the production plan, and their passion for the brand. They talked about what reviving Bronco would mean, and it was more than just selling a bunch of 4x4s. This was something that would change the way people thought about Ford. It was a bold idea for a company often viewed as safe. It was exciting, adventurous, and would remind everyone about a time in history that anything was possible. There was also a surge in optimism outside of Ford World Headquarters, on the streets of Detroit. The city had shed a large chunk of its debt, the Red Wings and Pistons both had new downtown arenas in the works, and crime rates in the core were dropping. It was a new day for the city and for the Bronco Underground. Their plan got approved. Funds were allocated. They had money. The Bronco was added to the cycle plan. It was a real thing. Now there were still thousands of details to be worked out, but without a doubt, Bronco was coming back. It's capable of conquering everything from your daily commute to gravel roads and boulders. And of course, it's a name you've
1: known and loved for decades.
0: In 2017, Ford shared the news publicly for the first time.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to
0: finally announce that we're bringing back the Ford Bronco in 2020. So yes, if you love something enough, you can bring it back to life. It just might take you close to 20 years. But now that it's coming back, what kind of Bronco will it be? Will it be a capable compromise like the 66 Bronco? Something big, brash, and bold like the 78 version? Or maybe something compact and fuel efficient like the Bronco 2? Well, we have one more chapter left in this series. And for that, I'm headed to the most secretive room in automotive, Ford's legendary Studio S. The room where the Mustang, the Thunderbird, and yes, the original Bronco were all conceived. Before you click on that episode, I've got a bit of homework for you. If you had to describe the Ford Bronco in just two words, what would they be? You've got the entire dictionary at your disposal, so pick two. I'll give you my two in episode eight, and so will Ford's top designer. I'm Sonari Glenn. This has been... Bring back Bronco, the untold story. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen.